Broadcasting worldwide from Vancouver, Canada. Welcome back to the Personal Process Podcast. The show that takes you through the growth, hardship, self-discovery, lessons, and stories of individuals who achieved success in their own personal path. Trust the process. Welcome back to another episode of the Personal Process Podcast. Today's guest, four-time TED speaker, author of way too many books to count, motivational speaker, mental toughness champion, and you know someone that is very exciting for me personally to have because this is someone that I actually looked up to when I was in high school playing basketball, and you know not just for my moves because you know Dre Baldwin teaches everything from the crossovers to your jump shots, everything you can think of, all the nuances, but also to how to address life, how to go through it gracefully, how to take it with, you know, vigor and tenacity and get through it and, you know, thrive. So with that said, Dre, how are you doing today? I'm doing amazing, Parm. Thank you for having me here on this show. I definitely appreciate that introduction and I'm Excited to talk to someone who's been following me since, you know, since back in the day, back when I was still, you know, doing the dribbling drills and the dunking. A lot of people these days uh, don't, they don't know me from that. A lot of my audience now doesn't know me from that. So I'm happy to have this conversation. No, for sure. I mean, that's the interesting part, Dre. You know, you've... You've kind of done like every aspect of life, right? Like you, you, you built your own brand, you know, you played professional basketball, you wrote 20 plus books. I think the number is 27, if I'm correct. For now. Yes. That's For right. now. Exactly. Right. Give them, give them two yeah. days, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I got more in the world. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm just uh, absolutely thrilled to have you on. I think your story is just going to really give a lot of value for our audience. And I think with that said, Drake, do you mind just giving us a little bit of your background, you know, like where you're born, how the early life was for Mr. Dre Baldwin? Yeah, so my background is from the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, born and raised, uh, always into sports growing up. So I played the street sports, uh, kickball in the driveway. Somebody had a backyard basketball court, you know, the portable ones that you can change the height. So when we were young, we would lower it so we could dunk on it. Then we start playing on the ten foot court. Uh, playing street football. The first sport that I really thought I could do something in was football. That's what we first played growing up. So I, my favorite athlete back then was Deion Sanders, you know, prime yeah. time. Played basketball, I mean, baseball and football. So I played yeah. into trials for the football team. Uh, my parents told me they couldn't afford football equipment. I don't know if they couldn't afford it, but I had a sister who was a year older than me. Yeah. And the way my parents did things, they bought something for one, they had to buy something for the other. Right. And my sister wasn't playing football. So there I are. How do we balance out buying him football equipment? So that yeah. was the end of my football career. But they suggested <laughs> they didn't just yeah. kill my career and leave me nothing to do. They said, all yeah, right, yeah. I'm going to play football, play baseball. So now I played baseball and I wasn't good. I wasn't good at baseball. I played it for several years, but I wasn't actually good. And I wasn't really excited about it when I was I continued to you know strike out in all the games and all that. I was kind of yeah. not good at hitting the ball. So if you you want to play baseball, you probably got to be good at hitting unless you're a pitcher. <laughs> So I left baseball at age 14. I started playing basketball yep. and everybody in my neighborhood where I come from, everybody at least tries basketball because yep. you don't need any equipment. Only one person has to have a ball. You can just show up, come as you are, and you got a basketball game. So that's the last sport that I tried. And luckily I stuck with it. I was terrible at that at first as well, but I just yep. kept practicing because something told me that maybe 
I can make something happen there. And honestly, I had no other options. I mean, football was done. Baseball, yep. I, I had already tried. The there were no other only other sport in our neighborhood where I come from was a tennis court. It's right next to the basketball court. Nobody ever uses the tennis court. So nobody's playing tennis and you can't practice tennis by yourself. You can only practice tennis with you need another person with you or a trainer or something like that. So when I started playing basketball, you know, I was terrible. I just kept coming to the court, practicing on my own. Eventually, I started to get a little bit better, a little bit better. Tried out for my high school team. Didn't make it three years in a row. Finally made it my senior year. Sat the bench that year. I had front row tickets to all the games. Sat the bench and watched the entire season from right there on the bench. Average <laughs> uh, two points per game. And this yep. is coming out of a senior in high school. So anyone yep. who's scoring two points per game, and those of you who don't follow basketball, two points is not a lot. Now, maybe in mm -hmm. hockey or soccer, you're a superstar. Yep. But in basketball, two points, you're a bump. So anyone looking at me now would have, then would have said, hey, this kid is going to be successful in something. I mean, he graduated high school, but it's probably not going to be sports. So I walked mm -hmm. on at an NCAA Division three school. So I did go to college. I was going to college either way. I walked yep. on, which is for people who don't know what that means. It means you're not invited. You don't have a scholarship. Nobody knows yep. who you are. You literally just walk into the gym. So I walked yep. in the gym, showed my game, earned my way onto the team in college at this, sitting on the bench in high school, go figure. Started yep. as a freshman in college. But I'm yep. at the D3 level. So even though now my stats weren't amazing in college, I did OK, but I didn't set the world on fire. And coming yep. out of college, I didn't have any prospects to go any further in basketball. A lot of athletes, I mean, if they make it to play college basketball, that's an achievement. That's a big deal. You played in college because of all the players who play in high school, only a small percentage, maybe three, four percent even play college ball. So the fact that I had played was an accomplishment, but I had bigger dreams. And there were other things that happened along the way that I'm sure we'll get into in this conversation. But to keep the story short, wanted to go pro, had no prospects, no way of getting in, no information. I'm trying to play overseas. And at first, I just worked a couple of regular jobs after I got out of college. I worked at Foot Locker as an assistant manager. I worked at mm -hmm. a gym called Bally Total Fitness as a uh, membership salesperson. And a year removed from college, I went to this event called an Exposure Camp, showed myself there. Exposure Camp is like a job fair for athletes, for people who don't know. You basically, instead of handing out your resume and shaking hands, you play your game. You bring your sneakers and play your game in front of an audience of decision makers, coaches, agents, managers, scouts, etc., team owners from around the world. I did well at that exposure camp. Now we, right. my friends and I, we drove from actually Philadelphia to Orlando. And for people wow. who don't know that geography, that's a 17 hour drive. We left Philadelphia on Friday and the camp started at 9 a.m. on Saturday. We pulled into the parking lot at 8.55 a.m. on Saturday. Got right out of the car, went right into the gym and started playing. Now, that's something I could do at age 23. I don't think I could do it now, but I yep. did it back then and it worked <laughs> out. Did well at that exposure camp and yep. I got the footage from that camp and that footage was on this thing called a VHS tape. Now, oh, those of you not old enough to remember <laughs> that, you can Google it or ask you know, your uncles or your parents. They'll tell you what that yep. was. But it's a physical device with all your footage on it. This is before we had the, the smartphones. So yeah. I took that footage. I took it to an audio visual store because this is the most important footage of me playing basketball I ever had up to that point in my life at age right. 23. Got that footage put on a data CD and I put that mm -hmm. CD into my parents desktop computer and I uploaded it to this brand new website that had just come out. I had heard about where you could put up as much footage as you want. You can put as much video on there as you want. And it was all free. And the site was called right. YouTube.com. So at this point, I started two careers at the same time. So that exposure camp helped me connect with an agent and an agent for basketball works the same way that a, a literary agent works for an author or an agent works for an actor or an actress or a model. They're the go between yep. between the jobs 
and the people who want the jobs. So I connected with an agent. That agent helped me start playing professional basketball in 2005. That video from the VHS tape I put on YouTube, that helped start me what later, what later became a brand and a, a movement called Work On Your Game. Those both happened in 2005. So now I'll fast forward from 2005 to 2020. We'll fill in the gaps in this conversation. Yeah. Now I stopped playing pro ball in 2015. Mm -hmm. I still publish content to the internet, not basketball stuff, but still publish content to the internet. And I'm the owner of my company, Work On Your Game. What we do here is we take the tools that are necessary to reach the top 1% in the sports world, and we teach how those mental tools can be applied at work and in life. And of course, we still help athletes. We also work with entrepreneurs, business yeah. professionals, Anybody who's looking to develop some skill, get known for their skill, get seen for their skill, and of course, get the return on investment. In other words, get paid for their skill. That's what we do here. That's huge. So, you know, Dre, yeah. you just dropped a bunch of knowledge. You know, you, you really condensed yeah. a whole bunch of life story into what is that, like nine minutes? So that's huge. Just an achievement on its own, <laughs> you know? But, you know, yeah. I just want to take you back a little bit. You know, like, let's talk right. about the fact that you just started basketball and you're saying you weren't even that good. But then, right. you know, you kept trying and you kept trying and you didn't make your high school team initially, similar to Jordan. And then you you made it in your senior year. Like, how, how are you feeling when that happened? When I made it or when I got yeah. cut? <laughs> Both. When I made it. <laughs> All right. So my freshman year when I tried out. Now, coming from the city of Philadelphia, we I'm, I went to school in North Philly and the yeah. schools were pretty underfunded back then. So we didn't have levels of programs. I meet players when I went to college. I met players who come from suburban areas. And they're like, all right, well, I played on the freshman team. Then I played on the JV. Then I played on the varsity. I'm like, we didn't have that. We had one team, all right, yeah. the varsity team. There's no JV. Even the varsity team, there weren't even any assistant coaches. It was just one guy. He was the gym yeah. teacher. But he was the basketball coach. No assistants, no nothing. So it was only one team. Everybody tries out for the team. Again, yeah. if you're from the inner city, you know every boy in the school tries out for the basketball team. So ninth grade, I didn't make it. I didn't think I was going to make it, and I didn't. My sophomore year, I was a little bit more intent on making it, but I was okay not making it because I still would have two years left. Now, my junior year, I was ready. Now, right. I was a little bit taller. You know, I started to grow into my body. I was getting more athletic, more confident in my skills because I was still going to the park and, you know, practicing by myself at the local playground. And if everybody got out the way and I got a running start, I could dunk. So I finally started to get some athleticism. And you mentioned Michael Jordan. I had always, I've always been a big reader, RM. Yep. So, I remember reading Michael Jordan's story that he got cut from his high school team his first two years as well. Then he made yep. it his junior year and you know, then he became Michael Jordan. So yep. I'm thinking, all right, I'm still on track to become the greatest player of all time. I'm yep. on the same I'm on the same trajectory as Michael Jordan at this point. And yep. I didn't make it that year. I got cut again as yep. a senior. I ended up getting matched up with a guy who was a senior during tryouts. And right. He wasn't even that talented. He was just stronger than me. So he just right. kept posting me up. I had never lifted weights to this point in my life. He just kept posting me up and making layups on me, and I couldn't stop him. <laughs> he yep. just kept making shots <laughs> on me. So I, I only got cut because I, the bad luck of the draw, I got messed up with the one guy in the gym who was yeah. so strong that I couldn't stop him. So he scores all these points on me. He probably scored more points on me at that one day in tryouts than he scored the whole season on the basketball team. He didn't even score on the team. He wasn't a scorer. He would get the ball wide open in the game, and he wouldn't shoot it because that wasn't his game. But that one day in tryouts, he became, you know, Anthony Davis, and he's just trying to shoot every time. It's <laughs> going on me. So I didn't make the team my junior year, safe to say. But now after that happened, when I didn't make it, uh, Parham, what I did was I was kind of thinking to myself, maybe basketball is not going to work. 
because mm. you know I'm a person who always visualized my future. And I visualized basketball was the thing. Like I said, Michael Jordan didn't make it till his junior year. This is my shot. At least get on the team. Even if I sat the bench, I'll be fine. I'm on the team. I have a foot in the door. But yeah. now that I got cut again and I got embarrassed at tryouts. I didn't just get cut. I got embarrassed. I was the talk of tryouts yeah. for the, of the wrong reason. So for about a week, I was just trying to think in my mind, all right, what else can I do with my life? Because it's obviously not going to be sports. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can be a more serious uh, student. No, nah, that wasn't going to work. Maybe I could be a, a rapper. No, nah, that wasn't going to work. <laughs> and I didn't know what else it was going to be. And I'm trying to get this vision in my mind. It's just the way that my mind works. Now, I'm only yep. 16, so it's not like yep. there's any pressure on me to you know, figure out your life, kid. But that's just the way my mind works. But after a week, uh, somebody in the local neighborhood where I'm from, they said, hey, Dre, there's a, a 16 and under basketball team starting up at the local rec center. You could maybe come play for them. And I said, all right, I'll give this basketball thing one more shot. Because as I kept trying to visualize doing something else, I couldn't really latch on to anything. And my vision kept coming back to basketball. But I'm saying to myself, my conscious mind is like, all right, well, you saw what just happened in basketball. So why do I keep telling myself I'm going to be a basketball player? So when I saw this opportunity to play on this team, I said, all right, I'll do it. And this is it. This is pretty much my last shot at really being serious about ball. I played on that local team and I did pretty well on that team. Now, this is just these are all guys who should have been on their high school teams wherever we went to school. But none of us made it. So we're playing on this team. Like You couldn't play on it if you were on your high school team. So we're all guys who got rejected from our high schools and we're on this team and we had a good team and I was one of the top contributors on that team. So my confidence was built back up. So going into my senior year, uh, we had tryouts again. Tryouts worked the same way every time. And this time I happened to make the team. And how did I feel? The thing that I was looking forward to, actually, I know when I made the team, there was a guy on the team whose name was Arnold. He was a senior as well as I was. And we're both about the same height, both skinny long guys right and yeah. we're both about maybe six two six three and in the city our high schools our tallest guys like six four six five so we were both like big men and arnold had been on the team the year before so yeah. arnold considered he thought that he was better than me but i knew arnold's ability i knew he wasn't very skilled he was yeah. pretty much he was pretty much the same as the guy who had scored all the points in me the year yeah. before yeah. but he wasn't that strong he was just skinny yeah. he was tall and skinny so i could keep him from scoring on me so Arnold calls for the ball. We're in tryouts. Arnold has me guarding him. He's like, oh, I got Dre on me. I'm going to score on him. So he yeah. calls for the ball. So they give Arnold the ball. But I knew Arnold didn't have any moves. He was just athletic. He could jump. That's all he had. He had no moves. So he gets the ball. He turns around to shoot. No move at all. Just turns around to shoot on me. And I just blocked the shot right back in his face. And Beauty. everybody in the gym, everybody in the gym is like, oh, because <laughs> you got to understand, he was on the team the year before. So he's an incumbent. Yeah. So anybody knows if you ever been to a tryout, if yeah. you haven't been on the team and then you outplay somebody or even you make one play against yeah. somebody who was on the team, that's like the best thing you could possibly do. Right. You showed up the guy who already has a spot. So when I blocked his shot, that was the moment that I made the basketball team. And this was like the first play of the whole tryouts. Like we were the first guys on the court. This is the very first trip down the court. I blocked the shot. I'm like, I made the team <laughs> off of that. So I ended up making it. But again, like I told you, the rest of it is not like it was some amazing journey after that. I pretty much sat the bench, but it was just the fact that I made it. It validated me and let me know, hey, all this effort was worth it, even to sit the bench, just to say I made the roster. That felt like validation to me. Yeah. And, you know, like how what were you thinking of? You know, like you you put in all this work and years on years, of you know, not being at that amazing level to make that team, but now you finally right. did it. And 
you're still sitting on the bench, you know, still scoring two points a game. Mm-hmm. Like, what was going through your head? You know, your whole brand now is mainly focused on motivating people and keeping that mental toughness. So what did you do during this period to keep that mental toughness for yourself? Excellent question. Because This is a part I was going to tell you in the last, but I'm glad you asked it. So that year, this is my senior year, I was in, in my class, like my homeroom class. One of my teammates was on the basketball team and this guy's name was Darian. Now, Darian, he was a, a point guard. He yep. was the best player on the team. Now, Darian averaged about 22 to 25 points per game in yep. the Philadelphia Public League, which is a big deal. You average that many points in the Philly Public League, you're probably getting a scholarship somewhere. Darian ended up playing D1 college basketball. Right. And now he and I didn't really know each other like that before that year. We knew of each other because our high school wasn't that big. Our graduating class was like 200 people. Right. But we hadn't been friends. But since we were in that class together, like damn near all day, we got yeah. comfortable with each other. And because yeah. I ended up making a basketball team, we got much more comfortable because we have this shared experience. For sure. So Darian, again, now you got to imagine I'm the 12th guy at the end of the bench, a senior who doesn't even play. He's a senior averaging 25 points a game with yep. scholarship offers. So yep. we're on completely different ends of the spectrum, but we're on the team. So I yep. would like trash talk Darian like I was better than him, like playfully. Like, man, you're not better than me. You, you just shoot the ball more than me. That's the only reason you score more points than me. <laughs> so I, I would just talk all kinds of trash to him like you're not better than me. But And Darian, he's a competitor. And yep. he knew playing against me, he was going to win. But he's yep. like, this guy's talking trash like he can beat me. So this is an easy victory for him. So he's like, all right, Jerry, let's play one-on-one. So every day before practice – me and the best player on the team will have this running game of one-on-one. Every day before practice, we would just play until the coach came in the gym, blew the whistle to start practice. Now, we didn't even keep score, honestly. But over the course of the year, and I, I say this so in case Darian's watching, he beat me. He scored more points than me. So if we were keeping track. If that was on video, you counted out the points he won. But yeah. sometimes he would try to do a move on me, and I would stop him. Yeah. And sometimes I would do a move on him, and it would work. So yeah. these – Every time that happened, it planted a little seed in my mind, Parham, that, all right, this guy's going on to a D1 scholarship. He's better than everybody else in here. If I could score on him and I can stop him, I could play with anybody. So that is what really, again, while I'm sitting on the bench during the game, watching him score 30 points, I had the confidence. All right, he scored every time he had a great game. That gave me more confidence because I'm like, all right, I scored on him and they can't stop him. All right. Yeah. They, they can't score on him, but I did. So I know I had something. I just needed to, first of all, develop more skill at the same time, I needed to develop the confidence. And I'll tell you one other thing that happened after my senior year was over. Yep. And uh, where are you from, Parham? I'm from uh, Vancouver, Canada with the flag. Right okay, here. Vancouver. Okay. So you're on the other side of the country. We are. We are. In north. Right. So outside of Philadelphia or in Philadelphia, there's this league called the Sunny Hill League. Yep. And the Sunny Hill League is like, um, have you heard of the Drew League out in L.A., the, the summer leagues that they play? Like Kevin yeah. Durant shows up yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. All right. Kobe played in it. So yep. the Sunny Hill League is like Philadelphia's version of the Drew League, but it's for amateur players, not for pros. Right. So this is Kobe Bryant played in the Sunny Hill League because he's from outside of Philly. Wilt right. Chamberlain from way back. Anyone from the Philadelphia area, the tri-state area who was good. Tim Thomas. A uh, guy named Dewan Wagner. You might not remember him. He didn't. He became. He played in the league, but he mm-hmm. kind of got injured. But anybody, Rip Hamilton, uh, Jameer Nelson, anybody from the Philly area who was good played in the Sunny Hill League. Right. So right, this right. is where all the best players played. So yeah. after my senior year, I seen on some bulletin board a tryout for a team in the Sunny Hill League. 
Now, this is after I've graduated or right before graduation, senior year of high school, after the season. Right. So I go to the tryout. Mm-hmm. Now, I walk in the gym at this tryout, and there's this place in Philly called Gustine Lake. And anybody who's from Philly who knows the basketball scene knows that this place, this is the place to be. Gustine yep. Lake is like, it's like Madison Square Garden for basketball players in Philly. Like, that's the right. place you play if you want to prove you're good. Yeah. So I, I walk into the gym. And it's like the whole Philadelphia all-city basketball team is in the gym. That's the only players in there. It's about 25 guys in there. And it's like, in be- this is back in the day. I graduated in the year 2000. So for people to understand, we used to get the newspaper the day after our games to read it and see how many points we had. Right. So yeah. I, open, I open the gym door, and I'm seeing the whole Philadelphia all-city basketball team from out of the newspaper. They're in the gym. Yeah. The yeah. best players in the city all here for this one tryout what i found out wasn't really a tryout they were already on the team the only people trying out was me and like two other random stragglers who showed up everybody else was already known and invited we just showed up to the tryout and what was funny is and something that is the really interesting point about it yeah is that nobody else showed up to this tryout i knew about it i mean i saw the bulletin but nobody else came everybody else in the gym was invited i showed up to try out and they never cut anybody because people just stopped showing up. So I ended right. up on the team. They didn't even have to cut me or cut anyone because people just wow. stopped coming because they're like, well, we're not going to make this team. So looking at this team, I mean, the best point guards in the city, the best big man in the year 2000, the best player in the nation, number one ranked player in the nation. You know who it was for him? Who was it? Eddie Griffin. You remember Eddie Griffin? I don't I'm remember sure right now. How, how old are you? Right now I'm uh, mid-20s, mid-20s. I uh, know you don't know Eddie Griffin. All yeah. right. So <laughs> I'm 38. So you don't know Eddie Griffin. So Eddie Griffin was the number one ranked player in the country yep. in the year 2000. Yep. And he was a big man. He was about 6'8", uh, really long. He was similar, kind of like Anthony Davis, not as athletic, but similar to Anthony Davis, but 6'8", 6'9". Yeah, yeah. Now he, he ended up going to Seton Hall for one year. Then he went to the NBA. He was the number seven pick, played for the Houston Rockets. But he had some, some mental challenges. He ended up uh, dying, actually, while he was still in the NBA, while he was playing for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Yeah, a lot of people don't remember him, but people who are older know who Eddie Griffin was. He was on the team, and he was just dominant. He never said a word. He never spoke, but the guy was just dominant. And all the best players in the city are on this team. Now, again, on this team, I sat the bench. I barely played in the games. But Mm -hmm. in practices, sometimes I would make a play on one of these guys. All these guys had D1 scholarships, all of them. I would make a play on one of these guys. I might score on one of these guys. I might get a dunk or something. And it told me, listen, if I could play with these guys, these are the best players in the city of Philadelphia, period, that are my age, I could play with anybody. So, again, it gave me the confidence that I could do it. So then I took that confidence to my D3 school where I walked on. And then slowly but surely, I had to build my game and build my experience of actually playing. And then over time, no, I eventually combined all of that and I was able to make it pro, but I'm sure we'll get to that. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And, and you know, they they say that, you know, you kind of frame your own destiny. And like, I think this is a really good example of that, you know, like there was an open tryout, but only two people showed up. You're one of those people. And who knows what life would have been like if you didn't take that opportunity up. Right. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. And I mean. Dre, can we uh, kind of go in a little bit deeper into kind of the motivational aspect of this? Because, you know, this is sure. you're still going into the 
room, you know, still not getting enough playing time for the amount of work you're putting in. And mm -hmm. in some of your blog posts and videos, you keep mentioning, you know, if you want to be confident and you got to be disciplined, you have to have structure to your game. How did that look like to you at that time? Well, for me at that time, there was no, I didn't really have a process in place, not anything that I could have explained to anyone. But yeah. my thing had always been just keep showing up and keep practicing. Mm. You know, for me, the only thing I ever did was I went to school and then I would be either working my little part-time jobs as my parents were big on, you know, get a job. You want anything other than food, clothing, shelter, you had to pay for it. So yeah. I would have my, my little jobs on the side, Pizza Hut, you know, hat store, McDonald's. I worked on movie theaters. I did all of that. But other yeah. than that, I was at the playground on a basketball court. So I was never you know, hanging out at the mall. I was never standing on the corner. I was at school, at work, or on that court. And I would just keep going to the court and practicing when I would figure out a new skill or I would see somebody do something and I wanted to see if I could learn how to do it. I would just practice it on my own. So we're talking yeah. the, the 90s here. So this is no Instagram. There's no yeah. YouTube. There's no nobody took me under their wing. It was just me showing up every single day to do the work, even when I didn't quite know exactly what the work should be. And I just figured it out on my own. So. What later became a lot of the drills or actually all the drills that you see on YouTube and people can still yep. find them online to this day. Yep. I made those up. Those just came from me coming wow. to the court every day and practicing. Nobody gave me those. I made all of that stuff up because I was just on the court every day practicing. I figured out what worked for me. And I figured once I saw that people were watching these videos and they wanted to know how I learned it. I said, all right, let me just show you what I practice. This is what I do. I don't know what anybody else does. This is what I do. And then it, it spawned a whole nother world. And now, you know, it's a, a full time business for a lot of people putting drills on the Internet. But yeah. that's not why I started doing it. I did it just again, that VHS tape. And then when I saw people were responding to it, then I just kept going. So I created the systems once I saw that it was producing a result that people wanted. I said, OK, I guess I have a system here. So let me show you how I did it. <laughs> that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. And and I think. Uh, one thing that a lot of people don't even realize, especially since, you know, a lot of us were watching your drills on YouTube and all that, is you actually started right. blogging, too. So that's right. Do you mind just telling me, like, what inspired you to start blogging? Like, what, what you know, like, tell me the process behind that. Yeah, my first blog came out in May. Blog post came out in May of 2005. That yeah. was actually the first thing I put on the Internet was the blog post. Yeah. Now, I heard about blogging. I graduated college in 2004. Yep. So I had heard about blogging, I guess, probably sometime between graduation and when I put that out. And then I saw that you could just start a blog for free. You can just you know yep. put anything you want on the Internet and just write it down. I said, that's interesting because I had always had this idea, this goal in mind that I wanted to have a website. Yeah, this goes back to like 2002. I wanted to have a website that was by me and just feature whatever I wanted to put on it, which was things that I had in my mind. Because Parham, I always saw myself as someone who I looked at things a little bit different than most people. I had a, some ideas that were not the same as everybody else. And I always felt like I could explain it in a way that people could understand. Now, people didn't always agree, but I felt like I could explain it so they could understand. Mm -hmm. So when I saw the option that I could just write and take my thoughts and take them out of my head and put them online, I just wanted to do it. I had no there was no content. Uh, distribution strategy. There was no marketing plan. I wasn't trying to become known. I didn't even have any idea how you could get anybody to even know that you're blogging. I yeah. just wanted to put it out there and just just take my thoughts out of my head and just release them out into the world. So that's how I started blogging. That's where the idea came from. 
And I would really just I kind of treat it just like a journal. I just took whatever thoughts or ideas I had at random times. And this is way before smartphones. So you yep. have to get on a computer and yep. actually type on this thing. And I would just get on a computer and just type out my thoughts and what was going on and what I was thinking about and what I wanted to do with my life. And that's really where it began, just wanting to share. But I don't yep. even know how many people were reading back then. I don't even know if they had stats. I don't know. I was just putting it out there just for the art of it. It wasn't really because I was trying to make it do anything else. And YouTube, again, the same thing. And it just so happens is a great you know, confluence of events that the Internet started to become the Internet at the same time that I graduated school. I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And I'm playing ball. It all just happened. It happened at the same time. So it was just perfect uh, timing that it all happened at once. Yeah. And I mean, kind of, and I, I want to get back to, you know, the basketball story, but like, this is such a great tangent, you know, that I really want to explore with one more question, if you don't mind, um, you know, like reflecting back on your presence as, you know, like an influencer, as an individual who has been on the internet for such a long period of time from blog posting to YouTube videos, to podcasting, you know, did you mm -hmm. ever think when you first started, you would be where you are now? Yes. Yes. I did. Yeah. Do you mind getting a little bit deeper into that? Yes. So when back in, so let me go back to growing up. Sure. Growing up, I looked at my the people, the adults who are who are around me. Yeah. They all worked. Of course, they worked. They're the ones who paid the bills, and they would say things like, "You know, if you ask for something, my parents would say things like, All right, do you pay bills around here? All right, or do you have a job?' Or you know." Do you pay for that? I say it's cold. Can you turn the heat on? Well, are you paying the heating bill? Yeah. OK, so things like that. So they the way that I read that and understood it was, OK, the people who work and make money, this is what adults do. They work, they make money, they get to make decisions. All right. So when you become older, you'll work, you'll make money, make decisions. The right. challenge with that was and I was fine with that part. The challenge was looking at these adults around me, not only my parents, but the people in my neighborhood, the family members, everybody, every adult. What I saw almost in all of them, almost 100 percent of them in my environment was, mm. number one, they didn't seem excited about going to work. Mm. They talked about work like I have to go to work, not I get to go to work. I have to right. go to work. Number two, they were always at work. All right, they, their whole lives were based around work. All right, I want to do this, but I got to go to work tomorrow. All right. Yeah. We could do that, but I got to go to work. So everything was based around work. Their life was based around work, not based around life. It was based around work. And the third thing is, even though they're always at work and even though they talk about it as if it's something that they had to do as an obligation, nobody ever had any money. Yeah. <laughs> nobody had not any extra money. At least we had food, clothing, shelter, but we didn't yeah. have money for anything else. Like I never right. went on a vacation until I paid for a vacation as an as an adult. Yeah. And there were never any extras yeah. around us. And I heard things like money doesn't grow on trees or, or do yeah. you think I'm made of money? Uh, we don't we can't afford that. Not how can we afford it, but we can afford it. These are right. kind of statements that I grew up hearing. So in my mind, Parham, I'm seeking unconsciously. I'm seeking. Is there another way that I can live as an adult? Because as a kid, when I'm 14, 15 and I'm hearing this, this from adults around me, people who I respect and love. Yeah. And this is the way that they're living. I'm thinking, OK, I'm about to grow up and now I got to live like this. I don't yeah. want this. So I'm like, is there another way to live? I didn't yeah. know if there was because that's all that I saw. Wow. So in the year 2000, maybe 2001, I stumbled across, got introduced to this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Now, 
I found that book on eBay mm-hmm. and bought it for 99 cents. The Word document got emailed to me, downloaded it, read it on the computer. And just the first two or three chapters of the book uh, was life changing for me because Robert Kiyosaki started to explain these principles of you don't have to trade all your time for all the money that you make. There are other ways to make money besides trading time for it. He explained that there are people who work for money, but there are also people who make money work for them. No one had ever, ever, ever explained that concept to me. I had never heard of it. I didn't know that it existed. And he went on in the book to explain how you know, some people, they make more money than others, even though they seem to be working less. And yeah. I'm like, OK, this is the this is the kind of thing that I'm looking for. So that kind of starts to connect dots for me, because I remember right. at these little jobs that I used to work as a teenager, I would ride the bus out to the mall in the suburbs to go to work. And I would ride from my neighborhood where I'm from, where it was the row houses, every house next to each other. And then I would ride past these houses with these big yards and there's more than one car in the back and there's rabbits running around the neighborhood. I'm like, right, what are these people doing for a living yeah. that the people in my neighborhood are not doing? And right. I said, I don't know what they were doing. I still don't know to this day, but I'm like, All right, maybe some of them are doing this. Maybe yeah. they're doing what Robert Kiyosaki's talking about. Maybe that's why they seem to have some extra money. It looks like, I was just looking at their house and looking at their lawn, it looks like maybe they do have some extra money that the people in my neighborhood don't have. So that planted the seed in my mind that I want to be an entrepreneur after yeah. basketball. I knew basketball was going to be the detour after college, but I knew I wanted to do entrepreneurship after that. And another reason why, when mm-hmm. I was in college, I went to Penn State University. I have a business degree from there. My last two years, I'm in business classes. Yep. Now, you see the same people in the class because we're all in the same major. So you run into yep. the same students in all your classes. And I'm looking around at these students and they were all way more serious students than I was. Uh, they wouldn't actually bought the textbooks and I tried to yep. get by without buying the textbooks yep. <laughs> and not doing the homework and just doing enough to get by. That's the kind of student I was. I was smart enough to graduate, but I was not diligent enough to be a really good student. I did enough to get by. I admit it. Sure. And I would look at these students and they would all seem to be working so hard and be so dedicated. And I'm like, I'm not like these people. I, I know right. I'm not like them. I knew that all of them would go on to be great employees at somebody's company because that's what school was grooming them for, to Absolutely. listen to these instructions, sit down, shut up, do what I say and do it right. And they yeah. were really good at it. And yeah. I felt like an outcast. I didn't I wasn't looking down on them. I felt like something was wrong with me because right. this is what I'm supposed to do in school. So I was like the, the slacker student. But yeah. I was smart enough to get a C anyway. I graduated yeah. a C average. My my GPA was maybe a two point six something, something like that. Yeah. It was a two something. I know that. I know I was an average student. But I'm looking at these other students, and I'm like, I'm not like them. I I want to do something other than whatever they're going to do. I want to do something different. So basketball was the first thing. But the other thing was going to be getting into entrepreneurship, and because the internet was coming around, Parham, and I saw the opportunity where you could kind of just put yourself out there. And mind you, this is early, early days. I it was just something in me that said, that's where I'm going to go. People are going to know my name, whether it's right. through basketball, whether it's through me sharing my ideas, whether it's I didn't know. Well, mind you, we're talking 2004 here. So nobody saw Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, branding, content marketing, influencing. None of those things existed. But I yeah. knew in my head somehow, some way people are going to know who I am. So to answer your question, yes, I absolutely did. I didn't know it was going to be like this specifically, but I did know that people would know my name somehow, some way. Wow. Well, that's such an amazing answer. You know, and, you know, the book that you mentioned by Robert Kiyosaki to all the audience members, you know, I've read that book, too. And I had 
I didn't have the level of success that you have, hopefully in the future. But, you know, it really um, changes. Still got the, time. Yeah, still got a little <laughs> bit of time. Eh? Right. Um, you know, I it really changes the way that you look at money. It really changes the way that you look at time. It changes right. the, your outlook on everything. And it's not that big of a read. So if you guys have some time, definitely check it out. And we'll get into some of Gray's books, too, because out of 27, you best know that he's covering a lot of aspects of life from ball to <laughs> motivation to everything in between. But, you know, you know, Dre, it's it's just incredible that you had this. You know, a lot of people, when they're hearing things like this, they might get jealous or envious. But, you know, I've watched so many of your YouTube videos. I haven't seen you once do that. Like, how do you how do you have such a positive outlook on life? How do you keep that, you know, composure and go forward? And you're like, OK, you know what? It's not happening today, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Well, it's two things. Number one. I know that there are people paying attention and I mm. know that there are people who are looking at to me as that person who's going to give them something positive. And once I position myself as someone, I position myself as this guy who's going to put something out every day. All right. That's the, the yep. corner that I've decided to own. And once you stand on that corner, all right, now you got to do it. Now you have to deliver it. Once you tell the yep. audience this is who you are and you see people are buying into it. OK, now you have to be that person. So when I put myself out there as the guy who's going to put out a new drill every day, all right, that literally means put out a new drill every day. It doesn't matter how you feel. You got to yeah. put out that new drill every day. And when it came to like the mental game and the mindset stuff, I know that people are looking to me for, OK, this guy's going to give me something, some nugget, just something that makes me feel good. Maybe something I never thought of. Maybe something I heard a thousand times before, but I need to hear it again. Something that can help reinforce. So that's the, the way that. I always look at it as an as a duty because yeah. I I asked for this position. Nobody said to me, Dre, you need to do this. I chose to do it. And it's kind of like I heard you no know, Michael Jordan talk about. Remember a few years ago when all the NBA players kept sitting out games for rest and the load management and all that? It was kind of getting out of control. And I remember reading in Michael Jordan's book back when he was playing. He said, you know, every night when I played, I know that there were people who spent a lot of money and rearranged their schedules just to see Michael Jordan and the Bulls play one time. And I took that as a personal duty that I need to show up and I needed to yeah. deliver them because they would never get to see me again. And that was my responsibility. So when I saw all these players sitting out games, I thought of what Mike said and said, see, this is the reason why Mike was different from these guys. The old school, new school conversation. But anyway, yeah. to further answer your question, the other part of it is the mental conditioning. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like when you play basketball, you do conditioning drills, right? You do the sprints and the suicides and running oh, this way and that way all kinds of things to make sure you don't feel as much fatigue during the game. And the purpose of conditioning is not to eliminate fatigue because that's impossible. Mm -hmm. If somebody does a lot of sprints, you're going to start to feel fatigue. Is this a matter of how much fatigue can you handle and keep going? Or yeah. how much time do you need to rest before you can keep going again? And mentally it works the exact same way because what I tell people Parham is that 99% of the things that happen to us in life, we do not control. Right. We only control 1% of life, but your level of mental conditioning is a measure of how much of that 1% are you going to take advantage of? Are you going to allow the fact that you don't control 99% to slow you down and you know, keep you keep you back? Are you going to use that as an excuse to fail or mm -hmm. use that as an excuse to let life have its way with you? Or are you going to say, okay, I only control 1%, but I'm going to take full ownership of this 1% and do what I can for myself. So are there days where I don't feel you no know, motivated or excited or maybe I got a challenge that's going on. Like right now, I got a challenge going on. My book publisher owes me money and they're taking too long to get my money back. I shipped yeah. the, I bought something from Nike 
and I shipped it via UPS and UPS says they lost the package. So now I'm trying to get my package back. So do I have challenges that go on? Absolutely. But yeah. at the same time, even if I have that challenge, I might even talk about the challenge and say, hey, this is the way that I'm looking at it, because I'm sure there's somebody else in the world who has a similar challenge going on or is going to go through a similar challenge. Here's a different way to look at it. Instead of getting frustrated and angry about it, how about you look at it this way? How about you think about it this way? How about you mm. take this different approach? Because everybody goes through stuff in life. And one yeah. of the things I talked about in my book, I know it's a long answer. I talked about in my book, uh, yep. Work On Your Game, yep. is that in life, Everybody goes through stuff, right? Now, the people who go through stuff and they allow the stuff to stop them or slow them down, they become the statistics. So it's exactly. kind of like they say, you know, 95% of podcasts that start don't last a year, right? That, those are the stats. The stories are the people who go through the same stuff, but they keep going. And because they become a success story, they get to tell their story. Then people want to know, how did you do it? How did you get there? So in life, you are either going to become a story or you'll become a statistic. And the only difference is how you handle the stuff that you're going to have to go through. And everybody has to deal with some stuff. So does that answer your question? Way more beautifully than I could ever expect. So thank you for that, Dre. And, <laughs> and, you know, right. that, uh, that's such an important thing. And this is the one thing that I was mentioning when I first introduced you. You know, it's not about just the basketball skills that you're teaching. And you taught everything, right. honestly. But, you know, for a lot of younger people, especially when I was growing up, there wasn't too many individuals who were actually talking about how to like embrace life. They were all just talking about, oh, you know, get that fancy car, get all this kind of jazz. But you're actually talking about, you know, the daily process. You got some struggles mm -hmm. going on. Think of it in a different mindset. And these changes that you were talking and, you know, convincing us about, it really changed my life. And, you know, whatever challenge, whether with relationships, family, friends, anything you know you're just like okay there's something to learn from there's something to take forward and grow as a person and you know i i really appreciate the lessons you taught from that aspect Dre. and i know a lot of other individuals from my age that were watching your videos from you know 2012 2010 all that good jazz they they yeah. really took a lot of value from that aspect of it so you know dre i i think this tangent is amazing but i still want to get back to your story because we didn't even talk about you know your professional so let's go back to the league and you know, you're still over there. You're still getting two points. What happens next? So this is what stage we at here? High school. I think uh, we just, we went off and uh, it was the summer league or. Oh, I did the sunny Hill, which yes, was I after high school. Yeah, yeah. So at high school, high school season ends in like March, like around yeah. college. Then yeah. I played in the sunny Hill league at the, right before I graduated from high school. So this league is not affiliated with the school it was just players. So yeah. that summer, after I graduated high school, so this is the summer of the year of 2000, just to give everybody a time frame. Mm -hmm. This is the summer where I actually started to feel like I was good at basketball. So I'm 18. This is the first time I felt like I was good. And my definition of good, and I said this on video, is when you feel like you can go anywhere, any gym, any park, play with anybody, and you'll be able to hold your own. That's the first time mm -hmm. in my life I felt like that. And then I ended up walking on that school at uh, Penn State Abington, which is a branch campus of Penn State University. And again, just walked in. Nobody knew me. I did yeah. not know anybody on that campus. I didn't know who the coach was. I didn't even know the coach's name. Yeah. And this was this was way before you can actually you could have Googled information back then, but it wasn't the internet was not what the internet is now, 20 yeah. years ago. So I don't know even know if the coach's information was on the website. And I didn't even bother. I didn't ask. I wasn't looking. Nobody yeah. told me to ask that question. All yeah. I knew was this is my mentality, my freshman year of college when it came to basketball. Find the gym 
go in there and play. It was only it was only one gym on campus, which meant to me by deductive reasoning, everybody on this campus who can play eventually has to come through this gym. So I'm going to be in here. I'm going to be playing. And the players who can play are going to see me. And we're going to find out what the deal is at that point when they come in here. And that's all I did. I just showed up. I played pickup with whoever was in there. I don't care. It could have been some random guy, some random fat dude who couldn't even touch the net. I'm playing with whoever's on the court and we're just going to do what we do. The basketball player teams, basketball team players eventually started trickling in. And, you know, they're asking, hey, anybody here look like they can play? And people started mentioning me. People started pointing me out. Then the players got to know me. Then the yeah. coach showed up and he said, hey, anybody in here I need to know about? They started pointing me out. So I pretty much had earned my spot on the basketball team before we even had tryouts because what I was doing at the beginning of the year before tryouts even started, they were like, all right, this guy, he can go. He can play. And again, my confidence was pretty high at that point. And another thing, a stroke of luck. Yeah. Uh, this was a, a pretty small pond. Right? Penn State yeah. Abington is a pretty small campus. It had like four buildings. So it's not like I'm at Duke and I just walked in and dominated. I'm at this little campus. It wasn't even D3 yet. They, they were like a provisional Division three school at this time. They're right. full-fledged D3 now. So it worked out perfectly for me in that case. So, again, didn't set the world on fire, but I was a starter my freshman year. I was maybe nine points a game, nine, ten points, something like that. Was an uneven performer because this is my first time really getting serious, consistent playing time on a basketball team pretty much in my life. So, again, I this built my confidence a little bit more, but I, I just kept going, kept working. So mm -hmm. here's where here's where the luck comes in. The yeah. work and the luck meet. After my freshman year ends, basketball season's over. And this is, you know, basketball season ends in like March. Now, school year goes till May. After the basketball season ends, I never saw any of my teammates ever again. Wow. They never came in the gym. They never came to play pickup. After basketball season ended, pickup games pretty much ended. Nobody comes in the gym anymore. It's yeah. like everybody just said, all right, we don't play basketball. They just gave up basketball. Everybody yeah. disappeared. So yeah. I'm the type of person when the season's over, I'm even more excited because now I know what I did well and didn't do well in the season. Now let me come in the gym and practice so I can be better for the next season. Yeah. And Penn State Abington's gym, this is one of the most beautiful gyms. It's one of my favorite yeah. gyms of all time because I had so much time in there by myself. It has yeah. six, six courts, six baskets. The court is always pristine, clean. Nobody's in there. It's empty. It was like it's like heaven to me. For anybody who plays ball, yeah. When you, when you were playing ball, you know you get to an empty oh, yeah. court, you're excited, right? I will be in there every day. It's dead yeah. empty. I literally mean empty. And I'm in there yep. practicing every day. So school year goes on. I just keep practicing. Never see my teammates again. The summertime comes. Mm -hmm. now, I wasn't even taking classes at Penn State Abington. Now Penn State Abington is right outside of Philly, 20 minutes right. from my home where I grew up. And I didn't even mention this. Penn State Abington is a commuter campus, meaning right. there are no dorms. There's no housing. So wow. everybody who goes to school there lives at home home and you travel to school every day. Yeah. So I live 20 minutes away. That summer, summer 2001, I'm working at CVS, the, the drugstore, the pharmacy. But I usually work that night. So every morning I will wake up, wow. drive to Penn State Abington, work on my game, lift weights, work on my game, do cardio, come home, take a shower go to my job at CVS, go to sleep, wake up, repeat. That's what I did every day, summer of 2001. One day, I go up to the campus to work on my game as usual. I had not eaten breakfast before I left the house. So mm -hmm. I parked my car next to the gym and I walk across the campus to one of the other four buildings on campus was the cafeteria. Yeah. Go to the cafeteria to get something to eat. I'm walking out of the cafeteria with my food and some random dude walks up to me and says, hey man, 
What position do you play? Now I'm looking at the guy. I, I know I don't know this guy. Now Penn State Adamson is a tiny campus, so I know everybody, especially all the black people. This guy's black. I know I don't yeah. know this dude. <laughs> and he's like, what position do you play? And I'm like, huh? He looks like a teacher. He's an older guy. He looks like yeah. a, a professor, the way he's dressed. And I'm like, how do you even know I play? It's not like I'm <laughs> carrying a basketball. I got on yeah. basketball shorts, but I got a hoodie on. I'm like, how yeah. do you even know I play? Why are you asking me this question? He's like, I'm just asking. So I tell him I'm a, I'm a guard. So yeah. he, we start talking a little bit. He asked me what I'm majoring in. And he's just you no know, asking me these random questions. I still don't know who he is. Now, finally, <laughs> he pulls out a business card and hands it to me. And as huh. he's talking, he's talking about the majors that his school offers. And I look at his business card. And he works in the admissions department for a different campus of Penn State. It's called Penn State Altoona. Mm. But he has two jobs. His other job, he's the head basketball coach at Penn State wow. Altoona. This wow. guy. Yeah. And here's what's crazy. He wasn't there waiting for me. He was not looking for Dre. He was on campus doing his admissions work, his other job. He was doing that job. And he later on told me, the reason why I approached you when I saw you that day is because I knew that I needed an, an athletic wing for my team the following season. And when you walked by, you looked like that kind of player. He didn't even know who I was. <laughs> he had never even seen me play. He just yeah. randomly noticed me and he took the chance to approach me because I looked like the kind of player that he needed. And I guess because I had on basketball gear, he said, man, when I see a basketball player, I know I know a player when I see one. So that is the stroke of luck because I was showing up every day to do the work. I got lucky and got recruited. He recruited me on the spot. So two days later, wow. I was transferring to Penn State Altoona and I finished my playing career at Penn State Altoona just off of that stroke of luck right there. Wow. And, and, you know, Dre, they, they say, you know, trust the process and all that. And like, this is such right. a great anecdote for it. Cause you know, if you weren't working on your game 24 seven, if you didn't have that confidence that day, mm. that may have not happened. Right. But since right. you put in all those hours, since you, I don't even know how you played basketball, went to school and work nights and you still repeated that on the daily. Like <laughs> you, you had so much grit and tenacity during those years. Because of that, you had this opportunity. And I think this is such an important anecdote for anyone who's watching or listening. Trust your process and go forward because, you know, that's what makes it. You know, luck happens, but you have to be ready for luck. And that's the second part of it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that was, that was, yeah, that was just the, the luck that happened right there. Just showing up. I mean, that gym was available to everybody. If you're a student at a college, you have access, as long as you got that student ID, you have access to the whole campus whenever you want, as long as it's open. And nobody ever came into that gym. I mean, the only people who would be in that gym that yeah. summer of 2001 was me and the administrator, the admin assistant who worked in the gym. There was an yeah. uh, older white lady. I remember I went back to visit Penn State Abington like three years yeah. ago when I was back in Philly. I live in Miami now. I was back in Philly yeah. and I went in there to visit her, visit the gym and she still worked there. And I said to her, I had her on camera. I said, do you remember me? I used to come in here. And she said, I remember you. You were the only one who used to come in here every single day because I would just show up and do the work. And that's how I got lucky. So that's that's how it happened. Man. You want me to tell the rest of the story? Oh, please. I'm loving All right. it. Okay. All right. So now uh, sophomore year of college, I'm at Penn State Altoona, which is 35 minutes away from State College, from the main campus where the football team and all that is Penn State. So this coach who recruited me. He is, you know, he's a, he's more hard as a coach. Like he's like, I'm going to coach you. 
And when you get here, I'm not going to be this nice guy. The same guy who's recruiting you. I'm not going to be a nice guy when you're playing for me because I'm going to drive my players. And I said, all right, cool. I was going there anyway. I didn't care what he said. So I get to Penn State, Altoona, and my bad practice habits because I didn't really – I had never developed practice habits. I'd never really been coached because I hadn't right. been on many teams. My bad practice habits cost me opportunities for playing time. So right. I didn't even play that much my sophomore year. I played, but I was like the seventh or eighth man in a rotation. Whereas right. I had been a starter my freshman year. I was seventh or eighth guy on this team. And the guy playing in front of me wasn't even good at all. He, had, he didn't even have any talent. But he worked harder than me. So he earned the playing time that I did not earn. Right. And this is something that I tell players these days. Like Players often come to me and say, Dre, well, I'm not getting any playing time on my team. So how do I get my coach to give me more playing time? And I tell them what my coach told me that year because I asked the same question. I said, Coach, how do I get more playing time? Mm-hmm. And he said – I said, well, can you give me more playing time? Why aren't you giving me playing time? And he said, Dre, you don't get playing time. You earn playing time. And the way you earn it is by how you show up in practice every day. And since you're not working hard in practice, that's why you're not playing. Uh, You're better than the guy who's starting, but because he's working hard and you're not, you're not playing. So the team was actually hurt by the fact that this guy who wasn't even good was playing more than me. Because if I had been playing, I would have helped the team better than him. But yeah. I had not earned it. And the coach was standing on that principle. If you don't work hard, you do not earn a starting spot. So I only started one game that year. And the funny thing is, it was our playoff game. I finally started working hard at the end of the season. And I started the one game we played in the playoffs. <laughs> but anyway, that year, it was a learning experience for me. And I'm glad that I went through that. I was really pissed at the coach that year. I really didn't like him that year. But the lessons that I learned from not earning my playing time that year taught me a lot, a lot of stuff that I still use to this day. And then I got unlucky. So this is a whole lot of luck and bad luck, good luck, bad luck. That coach who recruited me, yeah, he got fired. Oh, man. After my sophomore year, he gets fired. Now, anyone who knows college basketball, and if you don't, let me explain, or any college sport, when a coach gets replaced, the new coach that comes in usually cleans house, meaning a lot of the players who were there the year before will not be there with the new regime. And it's not because the former players are not good is because the new coach wants to bring in their own their own people, their own system. It's kind of like if a CEO gets fired at a company and a new CEO comes in, a bunch of people in the C-suite, they're getting fired. They're getting removed or relocated or replaced simply because the new person wants to bring in some of their people. So this new coach comes in. He was a former NBA player by the name of Armin Gilliam. Now, he played back in the 80s. He was the number two pick in the NBA draft, actually, behind David Robinson in 1987. But he, he passed away in 2010. But he comes in to coach. And he cleans house. I was one of the casualties of the house cleaning. Nobody from the previous year's team played for this new guy. So the next year, it was a whole new basketball team. Everybody got replaced. Wow. And the team, I ended up off the team the middle of my junior year. So I played a few games for him. But we kept butting heads. And he already had it in for me because I played for the previous guy. And he thought the previous guy was trying to, you know, uh, sabotage the program. So – I ended up off out of the program in the middle of my junior year. So I didn't play another college basketball game after eight games in my junior year. So my whole junior year, rest of the junior year, and my whole senior year, I did not play on the basketball team at all in college, even though I had been recruited to the school to play basketball. So that's a pretty bad break. And for the most part, for most intents and purposes, any player with that kind of background or that kind of setup at a D3 school where you walked on, your career is pretty much over. That's pretty much it. Get your college degree. Go do something else. You can at least tell people you made it in college. All right? You can at least tell that yeah. story. So it was pretty much over for any reasonable person who looked at me and said that. I had I graduated college, got my degree, 
I had no prospects, no agent, no offers, no opportunities, no nothing to play professional basketball. So when I came back home after college, my parents asked me, well, what are you going to do next? I said, I want to play professional basketball. And they, being logical, reasonable, smart people, started asking me questions like, do you have any prospects? Uh, do you have a job offer? Uh, do you have a plan? <laughs> How are you yeah. going to do this? And my answers were no, no, no. And I don't know. I had no answers to the questions. Yeah. So my mom basically just laid it out and said, well, look, you went to school. You got a degree. You don't have a plan. You don't have any way of making it in pro basketball. But look, you need to get a job. You need to you know, get an apartment. You need to you know, mm -hmm. get yourself a car. I had braids in my hair. So you need to get a haircut. She was you no know, just laying out. Look, we made all these sacrifices for you to go to school and you know, get your degree. So now you need to be an adult, live like an adult. You can't just go off of these hopes and dreams forever of basketball. So and, and again, my parents are reasonable, and logical people. So they saw that I didn't start playing until 14. Only yep. played one year in high school, walked on at a D3 in college, didn't play my last year and a half. It mm -hmm. made no reasonable sense for me to think I was going to play professional basketball. So they were not wrong. They weren't. And sometimes I get athletes to come to me and say, well, my parents are hating on me. You know, my parents don't want me to succeed. And my mm -hmm. parents are you know, holding me back. That's the reason why I can't do my thing. I'm like, no, it's not your parents. It's maybe because you haven't done anything. There's no reason for them to believe it because you haven't done anything to believe in. So I wasn't mad at my parents for that. But I took that situation and used it as motivation, not because I was mad at them. I was just mad at the fact that what they said was actually true. It was true. I had no prospects. So that year, as I mentioned earlier, I worked at my first job out of college was at Foot Locker. I was an assistant manager, mm -hmm. worked there, saved up some money. Got myself a little car, bought it out of the out of the newspaper, just dating myself. Bought the car got? out of the newspaper for it was a uh, I don't even remember what it was, man. It was a <laughs> I don't think they make it anymore. <laughs> Whatever it was, it cost about four five hundred dollars cash. So I met yeah. this guy. He said, "Meet me in the, the parking lot of the Eckerd Drugstore." So I yep. met him in the parking lot. I looked at the car. He was in the car. I looked at the yep. car. I was like, "Yeah, all right, it's cool. I'll take it." I drove it around the block once or twice with him in the passenger seat. I was like, "All right, I want it." We drove yep. to the title and tag place and we did the title and tag switch right there on the spot. He had done this before. Obviously, he sells yep. me the car. He called his man. His man comes, picks him up. They drive off in their car. I got my brand new car. So four or five hundred dollars for a car. I got yep. me a membership to L.A. Fitness for thirty dollars a month. I'm right back in that gym working on my game again. So every day that I wasn't at work at Foot Locker, I was in L.A. Fitness. I would get there. I treated L.A. Fitness like a job. I would get there like nine o'clock in the morning. And I would work on my game on the court. Then yeah. I would go and eat a little snack that I brought with me. Then yeah. I would lift weights. Then I would eat a little bit more. Then I would go to the upstairs where the cardio was. And I would do cardio for like an hour, right? Riding a the bike. Then right. I would go to McDonald's, which was across the street. Now, again, this is 23 years old, McDonald's. Yeah. McDonald's across the street. Eat a meal at McDonald's. Come back to the gym. And this is now by this time is about 5 o'clock. Now everybody's getting off of work. And they're coming to play pickup. And I would play pickup. I'll be in LA fitness from like wow. nine in the morning to like seven at night every day. Wow. If I wasn't at work, the other days I'd be at work. And that's yeah. what I did for that whole first you no know, six, seven months after once I got that job. Then I quit Foot Locker. I got a job at Bally Total Fitness, which is closer to home and is a gym. Now, they yeah. don't have basketball courts, but so I kept my LA fitness membership. But I could lift weights in there pretty much you know, for free because I worked there and I'm selling my gym memberships. And that was the summer of 2005. Mm -hmm. And that's when I went to my first exposure camp. And I had to uh, another thing here that I'll tell you, in order for me to go to that exposure camp, I needed to get three days off because the camp was in Orlando. Like I told you, I'm from yep. Philly. So yep. we had to drive from Philly to Orlando. And then we had to drive back from Orlando to Philly. So I needed Friday. The camp was on Saturday and Sunday. But we would drive on Friday, 
the camp would end Sunday afternoon. We could drive back. I can get back by Monday morning to Philly and go straight to work. But in order for me to get those days off, people got to understand when you work in that kind of job or any kind of retail job or sales, you have to work weekends. Nobody likes working weekends because the weekends are usually slow. And that's why everybody has to work them because everybody hates working on a weekend. So yeah. for me to get that weekend off, I needed to negotiate with my boss to give me three days off Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Nobody gets Friday, Saturday and Sunday off. Yeah. So I had to negotiate with him. So I went to my boss. His name was Steve. And I told Steve what I was trying to do. Now, Steve, we, we were kind of kindred spirits in a way because Steve was a guy who he was not going to be a lifer working in gym memberships. He wanted to do his own thing as well. He talked with me about it a little bit after I told him what I was trying to do. He knew I was a young guy. I just graduated from school. I told him, look, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm trying. I'm going to make my money. I'm going to do my job. But I'm trying to play professional basketball. That's what my destiny is. That's what I want to do, Steve. And when Steve saw I was serious about it, he would tell me that, you know what? You know, I want to start my own business, too. I'm you know, saving up my money, you know, telling my wife and things like that. And nowadays, Steve actually does run his own custom motorcycle business outside of Philadelphia. So when I told him, hey, I want to go to this exposure camp. It's in damn Orlando. I need to yeah. go down there. I need three whole days off. But yeah. listen, I didn't just go to him with that. And see, this is the mistake a lot of people making. Like they go to someone asking for something and they just tell them why it matters for them. All right. Here's what I'm going to get if you do this for me. Well, listen, <laughs> if you want somebody to do something for you, you need to tell them what they're going to get. Yeah. So I told Steve, listen, if you give me these days off. Here's what I'll do. I will work every day for the two weeks before the camp. And I'll work every day for the next two weeks after the camp. So that way. I'm not missing any hours. And here's the thing that mattered the most because we're in a sales job and Steve was the manager of the salespeople. So his job is based on how well the salespeople are selling memberships. So he needed me. I was one. I was probably the best salesperson there. So he didn't yeah. want me to not be at work. He wanted me to be at work because me being at work meant sales and sales meant he looked good to his boss. Yeah. So he wants me at work. So I'm like, look, I'm gonna miss these three days, but I'm gonna make up for it. And I'll make sure I make up all the sales that I might miss by not being at work. I'll make them up. And yep. Steve agreed to the plan. So that's the only reason I got three days off to even go to Orlando. Went to Orlando, did my thing at the two-day exposure camp, came back, made all the sales I need to make at Bali Total Fitness. And mind you, I'm still working at Bali when this ends. So after the exposure camp, I did my thing there. I got a good scouting report. I got my VHS tape highlights. And now I, need, I still need to get a job. So nobody yep. offered me a job to play overseas at the exposure camp. I did not get offered a job contract on the spot. I went right back to Philly with my VHS tape and my scouting report. Now, what I did then, and here's the part where I take initiative. Mm -hmm. I started reaching out to every basketball agent I could find on Google. Right. Now, again, we're talking 2005 here. So they are not as easy to find as they are now. Yeah. Now, this is my logical reasoning at this time, because there's no information on how to play basketball overseas now. The only information out there now is my information. But even back then, there was zero information. So I'm figuring, all right, how do I play overseas? I want to play for a team that's in you know, Germany. They have no idea who I am. Who knows those people? Who's the connect? The connect is the agent. The agent has those relationships. If I can get with an agent, the agent can connect Dre to the teams that want to play. So I just start calling every agent I could find. They had a phone number. I called them. They had an email address. I emailed them. And I reached out to these agents and let them know, here's who I am. Here's where I'm from. Here's my collateral. And this is the most important part. Here's mm -hmm. the scouting report from this exposure camp I went to, and I had video that proves I can play. I didn't have that before, so I hadn't reached out to agents 
because people might be wondering, well, Dre, why'd you wait till a year after college? Well, right. I didn't have any footage. I didn't have any proof. If you want somebody, if you want to tell somebody you can do something, you want to sell, you got to have proof. This is yeah. why when people sell things online, you see all the testimonials, right? That's the yeah. proof that you're actually good. So I had no proof when I graduated college, no footage. But when I went to that exposure camp, now I have proof. So now I start reaching out to agents. I reached out to probably 60 agents. Out of 60. those 60 agents, yeah, 60. Wow. Out of those 60, 20 of them said, okay, kid, send me your footage. Let me see what you got. Now, mind you, this is 2005. YouTube was not out yet. I think YouTube came out in the fall of 2005. So this is the summer of 2005. So all I have is this VHS tape. So I had a double-decker VCR. The VCR is the device that plays VHS tapes, people who don't know. So I put the master copy in one side of the VCR, and I bought 10 blank tapes from the yep. grocery store, and I put it in the other side, and then I had to buy another 10, and I made copies of my own tape. Yeah. And I started mailing those tapes out in bubble mailers on my own dime around the world to all these agents who asked to see my tape. Now, mind you, I'm working at Bally Total Fitness living in my parents' house. I didn't have that much money. So I'm yeah. spending my own money to go to the, I spent my last $250 just to go to the camp. That was the camp fee, wow. $250. So I'm mailing these tapes out around the world to agents and just hoping one of them is, is going to bite, is interested. One of those 20 agents that I sent that VHS tape to replied back to me and said, I'm interested in representing you. And that agent is the agent who helped me get my career started. He got me my first contract. That was in Countess, Lithuania in the summer of 2005. That's how my career got started. Yeah. And, you know, like, Dre, this is like the one moment where, you know, like professional basketball, like, let's be honest, for any any kid playing basketball, you know, any kid like working even 10% as hard as you did. This is like the moment where you're like, yeah, I finally did it. Like, how are you feeling? You, you finally got that. You know, you're you're mentioning you're on your last dime. You sent everything out. And finally, someone replied, what was going on through your head? What was going through my head was this was this is what I work for. This is what I've been aiming for. This is what I had planned to achieve. And this was, again, I had just formulated a story in my mind after getting kicked off the team in college. Mm -hmm. And then my parents, you no know, questioning my idea of playing professional basketball. And then just a story I made up in my head that everybody was looking at me like it's pretty much over for Dre. Now, logically thinking nobody was probably thinking about me at all but i made up the story in my mind because it helped motivate me so when i got that opportunity i said yeah now i'm going to get to go overseas now i got my i get a stamp on my passport it was it was validation it was kind of like when i was playing darian in high school one-on-one -on -one before practice and scoring on him that was validation that i can do this and yep. when i got that contract it was just validation that this is a real thing and then when i actually went over there and i'm actually in europe it was just it was very surreal it's like I'm actually in Europe because I can play basketball. It was I can't, I couldn't stop thinking about that over yeah. and over again. So that's how it felt. Right on. So what happens? Yeah. You come into Europe, you know. Yeah. I, I read your blog post on this, but I'll I'll let you take direction on it. All right. So yeah, we get to Europe, and this is my my first job playing overseas. I ended up on this team for maybe about six weeks. This first job opportunity, and my agent got me another one after that and another one i got another one on my own after that but the thing about being overseas was again it was just so surreal i'm walking around lithuania and mm -hmm. it was, i had a couple of american teammates there i had one american teammate who was my roommate and there was another guy who was actually from africa but he was black and he spoke fluent english and then there was another guy because there were two teams in the city i was in and he 
he was uh, American as well. So the four of us are just walking around Lithuania, four black guys. I'm the shortest one. So we're all like six, four and taller walking around the middle of Lithuania. And is all you see is uh, Lithuanians. All the girls are blonde and slim and thin. (laughs) And hardly anybody, not all of them spoke English, but a lot of the kids spoke English and people are asking us for autographs and taking pictures with us. And it's, it's, it was just a very surreal feeling to finally have made it there. But then I was only there for like six weeks and I ended up back home in the United States. And mm. it's not like I had stacked up a million dollars in the six weeks. So I'm back at my parents' house and my parents are like, oh, I thought we thought you were going forever. Now you're back. They didn't say that, but that's what I'm thinking that they're thinking. Yeah. Right? So, and I ended up having to get a, end up getting another job. I got a job at a grocery store. Now this was probably the lowest point when I got this job at this grocery store because working at Foot Locker and Bally Total Fitness is not like the best job in the world, but I didn't have anything to compare it to yet, right? Yeah. When I get the job at the grocery store, now I've already been overseas. Yeah. I know what it feels like to be overseas. I know what it feels like to be a professional basketball player. And now I'm not one anymore and I work at a grocery store. Now, not just at a grocery store, I'm working the overnight shift, stocking the nice. shelves. So anyone who goes, anybody who's ever been to a grocery store, you know, all that stuff that gets bought every day All right, somebody has to put that stuff back on the shelf. So there's a whole crew that gets there when the store closes at 11 o'clock at night and they work from 11 to seven when the store opens back up again. And all they do is put stuff back on the shelf that all the people bought during the day. That was my job. So the good thing is you don't have to talk to any customers. The bad thing is there's nobody to talk to because all you're doing is opening dusty boxes and putting boxes of Cheerios on the shelf. That's all you're doing for eight hours straight. I remember the first night, <laughs> I remember this, the first night I bought my iPod. This is before smartphones. I bought my iPod and the iPod died because I was playing oh. it for eight hours straight. So it died in about five hours. So the last three hours, I was literally just listening to myself think <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> the iPod died. So I had to come up with another idea for the next night. I don't remember what I did, but I came up with some idea. And that was the lowest of the low because I had something to compare it to. And then what happened after that is my agent reached out to me. Actually, I only worked there for about a week and a half. Luckily, my agent reached out to me and said, hey, I got another playing opportunity for you. And it was for a traveling team in the United States called the Harlem Ambassadors, which is kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters, but the Costco version, all right, the the, the Walmart version. So I went and played for them. Traveling team that takes us into 2006. From there, uh, I met a guy on that team who had a connections playing in Mexico. So I ended up playing in Mexico after that. After that, came home, didn't have a job again playing basketball. Got another regular job. This is at a, a gym in Philadelphia called the Philadelphia Sports Clubs. There's a more corporate gym, unlike Bali. I worked there for another six months. And from there, the next thing I did, I, I met a girl at that time. And then I ended up moving to Florida. And that's how I ended up in South Florida. And that was 2007. And now I was out of a job again after I I moved to Florida and I was doing a little bit of training people and stuff like that. I wanted to get back into pro basketball. And that's when I really learned how to sell myself. And this is when I sent about a thousand emails in the fall and yeah, the fall into the winter of 2007, trying to get back into pro basketball because I hadn't played pro basketball since 2006. The summer of 06, I came home from Mexico. Yeah. Then I got a job. I hadn't had a job for over a year in pro basketball. So it's 2007 now. It's about yeah. September, October, November. I'm working at LA Fitness at selling personal training. 
And I started sending emails every single day to every team I could find contact information for trying to pitch myself to get a contract. And it was around it was around mid December 2007, a team in Montenegro replied and said, we're interested in signing you. Now, at this time, I'm taking my YouTube now footage. I had a YouTube yeah. video that I made, a little highlight video. I had a little bit of a resume because I had played overseas already. So I put that in the email and I just kept using different subject lines, just trying to find different ways to get people to open my emails. So I'm you know, hacking. Yeah, I'm, I'm hacking, yeah. getting things working way before I even knew what it was. Yeah. And that team reached back to me and I signed my contract. I went over to, I remember it was the day after Christmas, 2007. That's when I flew out to Montenegro. So that is what got me back into the pro basketball game. This is 2008. And from there, uh, just now this is when YouTube starts to take off a little bit. This is when I start putting videos out every single day. This is when I was in a 24 hour fitness and I said, work on your game in the video. And that's when people really picked up on it. And that's when I started really pushing that, that freeze. And from there, uh, more exposure camps I went to, more tryouts I went to, more teams I played for. And at the same time, I started putting making my own products. And this is when yeah. I started selling this program called the Hoop Handbook. That was around 2009, 2010. And that's when I realized this goal of entrepreneurship that I had read back in Robert Kiyosaki's book. This is the first time I created something out of nothing and actually sold it. And I said, oh, I can make money in my sleep. I, that was the first time I ever did it. I woke up and I had a new sale that got made while I was sleeping. I said, all right, I made money in my sleep. $4.99, but money is money, right? So that's when I got started in entrepreneurship. And that's what planted the seed in my mind and told me actually another thing happened at this time period. Yeah. So around this period, this 2008 to 2010 period was a really pivotal period for me as far as the work on your game brand and me as an entrepreneur outside of basketball. Because around this time, this is when the early days of influencing, the early days of content marketing and branding and players who were watching me on YouTube, they started they started noticing my approach. They're like, all right, yeah, this guy can play basketball, but damn, he's doing it every day. And I would answer people's questions in the comments and all of that. And they started to notice a little bit about my mentality. And it was like, interesting the way that you think and the way you talk about things. Can you just answer some questions? And people started asking me, Dre, what keeps you showing up every day to work, work out? Why do you do it? Or how do you have the same confidence in a game that you have in practice? Or how do you have the same confidence, you know, talking to a girl that you have playing basketball? Or Dre, why'd you even keep playing? You said you got cut from your high school team three years in a row and you got kicked off your college team as a junior, but you kept playing? Like, how? How did you even do it? What was it? What was going through your head? Or how do you get started getting known on the Internet? Because by the time I started to have a little bit of a buzz because of these YouTube videos and I started answering these questions and I started talking about the four principles of work on your game. Discipline, show up every day and do the work. Confidence, put yourself out there boldly and authentically. Mental toughness, keep showing up, doing the work, putting yourself out there. Even when the success you expect to achieve is yet to be achieved and personal initiative, make things happen instead of waiting for things to happen. And when I started talking about these things, Parham, here's what happened. People who didn't even play basketball started watching these videos because I started making these every Monday. I put out this video called the weekly motivation. Right. Yep. And when I start putting those videos out, people who didn't play ball were watching the videos. Even friends of mine said, Dre, I'm subscribed to your YouTube. I just wait for that Monday video and they don't even play basketball. They were just waiting for that one video every week. And people were telling me, like, yo, the stuff you're talking about, this stuff applies in life as well as it applies on the court. And that planted the seed in my mind that when I'm done playing ball, here's what I can leverage to. I can take my sports experience and I can leverage that for an audience of people who don't play sports. Because, listen, when you're you have an audience of basketball players, they want to watch you play basketball. If you don't play anymore, then 
you might that audience is not going to keep paying attention unless you have something to offer them. So is a beautiful thing that nowadays that people like yourself who you grew up with me finding the basketball stuff. But now you're not maybe so much into basketball anymore. But the stuff that I talk about has evolved along with your evolution, along with a lot of people in my audiences. I mean, every day I'm meeting people who say, Dre, I used to watch you when I was playing ball. But, you know, now I got a software company. Now I have a podcast. Now I do this. Now I got a family. Now I have kids. And the stuff that you talked about off the court it still applies to me. So I really appreciate it. I, I hear that from people all the time. And so I really appreciate people like yourself just seeing the growth from the court to where you are now. So that is really what planted the seed for me. And then uh, fast forward a little bit, 2015, I stopped playing basketball professionally. And that's when I went full time into what I'm doing now. I started you know, putting out an audio show every day in 2016. I've done the TED Talks, like you mentioned. I written my first book back in 2010. So we can go back and talk about that if you like. And then, you know, over that time between 2010 and now, that's when I really started building what we have now, which is work on your game, where we work with the majority of our audience are not athletes. And yeah. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are maybe they used to watch me in the basketball days. And every now and then I hear from people like, damn, man, I remember when I used to watch your basketball videos. But there are people who stuck with me all through that time you know people like yourself even through the transition when i stopped playing ball and i start talking about these things that had nothing to do with ball not everybody stuck with me but there are a lot of people who did and i picked up a whole new audience of people through doing things like being on shows like this i'm sure you have an audience of people who don't never play basketball in their lives nope and then doing the ted talks and writing the books and uh, many media appearances and speaking gigs and things like that have really exposed me to a different audience one of the things parham for me that was always important is that i never wanted to be living off of i played basketball past tense because right, one day you're going to be a former player and no, nobody cares about a former athlete yeah. <laughs> they care about you when you're a current athlete but when you don't play anymore like what what have you done for me lately like what are you doing now so i always had that in my mind like what am i bringing to the table that makes me somebody now and yeah. that was why i always was looking for what's that next thing so when i found it i grabbed onto it and now here we are. That's fantastic. And and you know, Dre, there's just so much stuff here. So I think what I'm gonna do is I'm kinda going gonna go into like a rapid fire question because this stage of your life, sure. there's a lot of evolution, there's a lot of amazing things sure. you've done. And mm -hmm. yeah, I just kinda wanna get into it. So let's talk about your first book. You know, a lot of yeah. people may be thinking about writing a book, but what actually inspired you to take that first step and be like, you know what, I'm actually writing this. Let's go. When I saw that Kindle Direct Publishing offered the option for somebody to put a book out, <laughs> and I said, oh, I can just write my own book. I don't need to get a publishing deal. I don't need to be approved by anybody. I don't need to get anybody to say I'm worthy. I can just do whatever I want. I'm doing it. And actually, honestly, that was before Kindle Direct, before I even knew how to use Kindle Direct Publishing, because my first book, Buy a Game, I put that out just as a PDF. I figured out how to make a PDF. And I just yeah. put that on my website, dreallday.com. It wasn't even, I didn't even have a Kindle version. You couldn't buy right. it on Amazon. There was no physical book at first. At first, it was just, all I needed to do was just make the PDF. So I just wrote it in a, maybe a Word document, something like that. It exported it to a PDF and said, all right, go to this link. You can download my book. I didn't even ask people for an email address. So I missed out on probably 30,000 emails that I should have on my list to this day because I didn't even have a, a lead capture system yeah. back then because I didn't know what I didn't know. So the reason that I put that book out was just to tell the story because I knew a lot of people, a lot of players were asking me like, where'd you come from? How'd you do it? How'd you get here? 
And I just wanted to put my story in one place because one thing I learned on YouTube is that you get asked the same questions over and over again. So one of the reasons why I make so much content is because I just take the questions that people ask. So let me make a video about this or a podcast about it or write a book about it. So it's next person who asked me, I can just send them the link. I don't have to keep answering the question. So buy a game was just my way of telling people where I came from who were really following me at that time with the basketball stuff. And I knew I could articulate. I knew I could explain where I came from, something that a lot of athletes are not really that great at articulating how they do things and why they do things. But I knew I always had that skill. And even then, when I went back to do the audio version of that book four or five years later, the book was terribly written. The writing was not very good. I had to redo it. But there's <laughs> just the fact that I took the step and put it out there was that's why I did it to answer your question. Yeah. And, and you know, I was reading uh, one of your books description on Amazon. I think it was for marketing. And on the description, you're writing that, you know, don't be worried about what you put out, because if it sucks, no one's going to read it. And you know, exactly. what? <laughs> so true. right? Like a lot of people are worried. They're like, Oh, should I do a podcast? Oh, should I do YouTube? What if people judge me? Well, right. if no one actually likes your stuff, they're not going to watch it. So put it out there. You're going to learn. And you know, you evolve over time, you get an email list, you get all those clients and you missed out on 30,000, but now you're probably rocking with 500 grand to a million, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, Dre, another thing that I wanted to ask you, you know, what advice would you give to an individual who wants to get into speaking? Because, you know, you've mm. spoken at so many stages and, you know, I, I think you're someone that people would aspire to be if they're looking for that kind of stuff. Like, what was your first step into that? My first step into speaking was... I started looking up local events where here in South Florida, where I'm at, I just looked up um, events that were looking for speakers or call for speakers. I just Googled it. First of all, like how to, how to get a speaking gig, how to do, how to yeah. be a professional speaker. And there were a few random videos out and a few articles that offered a couple tidbits and a couple tips. And I just started Googling events that are looking for speakers or events that are happening in my area. And when I saw an event, I just looked up the contact person, whoever it was, and said, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Contact person, here's who I am. My name is Dre Baldwin. This is what I did. I played basketball because I know that's something that gets people's attention. I played basketball professionally. I made all these videos that I put on YouTube. I got this many subscribers and I've written a book. Maybe I might have had multiple books by this point. And I yeah. said, this is what I can talk about. I can talk about this. I can talk about this. Uh, is that do you see an opportunity here? And that's all I did. And that was just taking initiative. And it was just me trying to put myself in the shoes of the decision maker. All right, what about me is going to make them interested? And that's all I was thinking. And I just wrote, I would write emails, just cold emails. These were not, these are not even people asking for you to email them. This was just me deciding I'm going to reach out to them. And my mentality always was make it, make that other person have to say no. All right. Make them have to say no. A lot of people in life say no to themselves. So they deny yeah. themselves even taking the chance. But I'm the type of person who I'm going to ask and you're going to have to tell me no. And I'm OK if you tell me no, but you're going to have to tell me no, because I'm going to ask you and I'm going to make it direct. So that's how I got started in speaking was just looking for the opportunities. And when I saw an event that was happening and I felt like I could offer something, I just wrote up an email and said, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I can do. Here's my credibility. Here's what I can offer. Are you interested? Yes or no. And it was just like that. That's how I got started. That's huge. And, you know, just kind of like a follow up on this. You know, you're talking about the fact that you got to pitch things in the other person's perspective. Like, what can you offer? And that goes on to every area of life, whether it's getting on the basketball team, whether it's getting in 
to, you know, a business relationship with someone X, Y, and Z, you know, what did you learn from doing all this cold approaching, putting yourself out there so much that you wish you could have known earlier in your career? Main thing that I wish I would have known is just understanding exactly what those decision makers want. When mm. you know what they want, then you know what, what parts of your offer you should emphasize and what parts they don't really care about, what parts make the most sense and what they really need. Because what they say they want and what they really want are often not the same thing, <laughs> especially yeah. when you're talking big companies and corporations. They want a lot of times they want the same thing that they've always gotten, just a little bit different. They don't want something that's a little bit too far off the beaten path because it's risky and they don't yeah. want to take risks because yeah. if they take a risk and it fails, they they get fired. Or they look bad. So just understanding what exactly it is that people want, what exactly they need and how to package it up in such a way that people understand that they need it. So that's a little bit of copywriting is a little bit of just marketing mindset, just understanding the mind of your consumer. And your consumer can be a decision maker who has the choice whether to hire you or not. The basketball coach is a consumer because they're consuming the players and deciding which ones are going to be on the team. So just understanding the mindset of your your customer. That's something that I hadn't studied it, but I, I kind of had an innate understanding of that's what I needed to do, but I hadn't studied it. So had I studied it earlier, I probably would have been better at it from the beginning. Yeah, huge tips, huge tips. And, you know, do you have any blog posts or podcasts that you want to promote on this topic or books? On, on selling yourself? Yeah. Wow, there's so many. <laughs> I mean, right. my book, Work On Your Game, uh, also, you can get that at workonyourgamebook.com. And I have a book called The Seller's Mindset, which you can get at uh, workonmygame.com slash sell. And both of those books are also on um, Amazon as well, if people prefer that. But yeah, I have I got so much content on that. I can't even give you one by one. We'd be here all day. I know, I know. <laughs> and we've already had a really long and amazing conversation. And I'm cognizant that you are a busy man. So let, I just want to talk about a couple other things. And, you know... One thing that I want to know is, you know, the amount of content that you publish. One person publishing on one platform doesn't even make like 10% of what you post. You post like five things on Instagram, 10 things on Facebook, a million podcasts. You know, like how, what's the secret sauce tree? Like, what are you doing? Like, do you have a twin? Do you have, you know, like, tell me what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, the... Secret sauce. I guess I can give you three secret sauces. One is I never run out of ideas so that I'm never staring at a blank screen or staring at a microphone trying to figure out what to say or what to write. I already have the ideas at the ready. Number two is that I have an assistant and I can teach her how to make sure the content gets published to the right platforms at the right times. And number three, I could teach anybody actually how to do it. And number three, is I had to have a process. So I can't mm. teach someone a process until there is a process. So I have a process for how I make sure everything gets published, make sure everything goes up in order. So when I do podcasts, there's a there's a system for that. And I taught my audio guy what the system is, how it gets on the website, how to make sure it gets to the Spotify's and the Apple's and all that. When it comes to the articles, here's how you put it in the email and make sure it gets sent at the right time. Here's how you get it on the website. Here's how you can grab a snippet and post it and make sure we get that posted to Twitter and LinkedIn and to Facebook. Here's how you take the whole article and put it on Facebook. And when the only one that I do completely on my own is the Instagram with the posts and the, the pictures and stuff like that. But everything else, I created systems and processes that 
I could teach literally anybody who can understand English and who can follow a screen share video can publish my content. I create all the content, but I can show you how to make sure it goes to the right places at those times. And that's just a matter of just systematizing what you do. So a lot of people ask me about that. How do I get all this stuff out there so consistently is first of all, I had to know how to do it. And then the most important part, especially if you have anybody who's going to work for you or learn from you, if you want to even teach a course, is you must be good at explaining it. You have to be really articulate. And you have to be very detailed in explaining exactly what you're doing, not only what you're doing, but why you're doing it. So people can understand the why behind it, not just the what. And I've always had that skill. So that's how I'm able to publish someone's content. Right on. That's that's such an important point. You know, get your processes yeah. in, figure out what works for you. Be creative. I'm not sure if anyone can be as creative as you to get that much content, but you know, maybe we'll get a percentage of it. So, <laughs> you know, Dre, let's talk about work on your game university because that's something that you're working on right now. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, work on your game university, man, is a lot we could say about it, but I'll, if I put it in a nutshell, work on your game university is where we took everything that we do here at work on your game incorporated and we wanted to streamline it into one offering, one setting, one place where everybody can go. If you read the articles, you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you listen to the podcast, fine. You can get all that stuff. It costs you absolutely nothing but your time and attention when you're ready to take the steps towards, first of all, really working on your game. Whatever your game is going to be, everybody has a game. You're ready to really develop that game to the level that it needs to be at. Secondly, making sure you get seen, that game gets seen and you show your game. You get heard and known for whatever that game may be. And then the third step is you want to get the return on investment for your game. In other words, you want to get paid for it. So if you're a basketball player, you need to develop the skill to play. Then you got to make sure the right people see it. Then you want to get on a team, maybe make it professionally, maybe get a college scholarship. If you're a, a speaker, you want to be a professional speaker. First of all, we need to develop what are you going to talk about and how do you talk about it? What are the frameworks? How do you explain it? Secondly, we got to get you on some stages so you can show that you're actually good. And third, get to the point where you can start charging people for your speeches. If you're an author, for example, first of all, we got to figure out what you're going to write about and how are we going to actually put together the outline for you to actually write the book. Then we got to get that book out there so people know that you have a book and maybe build you an audience so you have somebody to sell it to. And third, how can you start charging money for that book and actually having people pay for it and maybe leveraging that book into other opportunities like getting a speaking gig or getting somebody to hire you as a coach or being a consultant. So work on your game is about, first of all, developing your game. Second of all, showing your game. Third of all, getting paid for your game. So if I had to put it in one sentence, that's what it is. That's amazing. And we're going to put a link down in the description below for the individuals who are interested because, you know, that covers sure. so much, so much in life and it can be applied in so many different settings. So I'd highly recommend checking it out. Now, Dre, I'm going to ask two more questions and then we're going to go into our closing segment. And this one question I'm going to ask, it's a very deep question and it's talked on the spot. So feel free to, you know, not answer it if you like. But, you know, in the beginning of every single YouTube video that I've watched, DreOldDay.com. Now, right. first of all, that's amazing. And I love listening to those intros. But <laughs> was, was there a time where you weren't DreOldDay.com, where it wasn't all this, you know, cool, calm, and collectedness that you could tell us about? When it wasn't that? Yeah. Man. Maybe like, high school. What, yeah. <laughs> or like, what was the point where, you know, you developed this? Like, what was that? Was there an event or an experience that really just showed you that this is the way that it needs to be? 
Um, I would say probably when I went to college and I think I, mm-hmm. I wrote an article, I think about this maybe a couple months ago. But when mm-hmm. I was in high school, I hadn't made the basketball team for three years. And then the one year that I made it, I only sat the bench. So and since I care so much about making it in basketball, that was the most one of the most important things to me. My identity, my self-identity, even looking at the people in school and how I thought they thought about me was this guy who tried to make the basketball team, finally made it. It still didn't do anything. So that was the way I saw myself in a way, maybe unconsciously. But then when I went to college, I had a chance to reinvent myself and create a whole new identity because nobody knew me there. I showed up at Penn State Edmonton. I knew literally nobody. Nobody knew me. So I was able to forge a brand new identity there. And when I walked on campus at Edmonton, I was one of the best basketball players on that campus. And again, because I cared so much about how I was doing on the basketball court, that played a lot into my overall personal self-image. So since mm. I stepped on that campus as a good player, then my self-image was able to, I was able to transform my self-image there at Edmonton. And then when I went to Altoona, the college I got recruited to, I was recruited to go to Altoona. So I'm like definitely one of the best players on this campus. I got asked to come here because of my ability to play basketball. So I walked on that campus with a certain level of confidence. So I think from that point that I went from high school to college, that's when I was able to just forge that brand new identity because I walked in there as a known commodity on the basketball court, or at least a good commodity on the basketball court. That was when that change happened. That's incredible. And, you know, Dre, let's talk a little bit about the mirror of motivation. You know, this is one of the books you're working on and you're offering it for free, at least yesterday when I looked, it was free. You know, everyone, everyone, (laughs) um, you know, everyone else got it right and handling let's let's check it out oh beautiful look at that cover it is. that's it you know self-guide self-discipline yeah so t- i have a one question for you you know what's yeah. your goal with this book like what impact do you want it to have on a reader the reason why because out of 27 books people would always ask me well dre which book should i read first and often okay. For a long time, I didn't have an answer. I would just tell them, well, pick whichever one you want. But that's not a good enough answer to give to a consumer because they'll be confused and they'll do nothing. So we start with this book because when I talk about work on your game, it's four principles, discipline, confidence, mental toughness, personal initiative. This is the self-guide to self-discipline. This is the first of the four principles of the core work on your game philosophy. And what the reason why people will want this book and the change that they're going to make undergo, the impact it's going to have is that everybody who's listening to this You have goals in life, things that you wish to achieve. And if you listen to this whole conversation so far, you probably are willing to do the work. You're willing to put the effort in. The challenge that many people have, even though they have goals and they're willing to work, is that they never ask themselves the key question, which is, who do I need to be? What type of person do I need to be when I walk into a room? What kind of energy do I need to have? How do I want people to feel about me? Who do I want to see when I look in the mirror? How do I want to feel about myself? This book, The Mirror Motivation, will provide the frameworks for you to answer that question for yourself. This is not me hyping you up. This is not some no rah-rah YouTube video. This is you giving yourself the answers to the question who you need to be. That's why the book is called The Mirror of Motivation. It's you looking in the mirror for you to be able to answer that question for you. So anybody can get this book for free. I paid for the book. All you do is cover the shipping, small shipping charge. Just go to mirrorofmotivation.com. The book is paid for. You handle the shipping again, mirrorofmotivation.com. And we got more books. We'll show those to you. But first, let's start with this one. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we'll have the link in the description as well. And, sure. you, you know, Dre, you've written so many books. You have so much knowledge. And 
to be honest, like if we wanted to get through everything, it'd probably take five years. Um, but, you know, so I think we should, you know, just go into like a little bit of a closing because I think we've got through a lot of your life experience, your personal process. If you so let's do two things. One, one message that you'd like to give our audience, however you'd like to put it. And then the second thing that we'll talk about, just any shout outs, social media handles, anything you want to say. So take the stage. Most important thing that everyone needs to do in life when it comes to achievement is get a grasp on who you are being in life, not what you are doing and not what you want to have. Most people go through life. Most people who have who are goal oriented, they have goals, things they want to achieve and they realize, OK, I got to work to get to my goal. So this is where you get uh, hustling team, no sleep, no grind all day, grind all night. No, this is all the hard work, motivational cliches that you hear. And hard work is a good thing. I'm not knocking hard work. I mean, I have a hat on that says work on your game. So work definitely matters. What many people never ask themselves, though, is who I need to be. And the principles of achievement in life, three step process is be, do, have, meaning you must be first. When you decide who you are being and it is a decision who you are being, the doing comes with it automatically. And when you are doing the right things, the results of that doing happen by themselves. For example, if a person is you know, overweight and not in shape and they decide that they're going to change their being to a person who is, is in shape and is going to have a nice body and feel good about themselves and be healthy, what needs to change? Not what they're doing. All they need to do is change their being. And they already decided I'm a person who's in shape and who's healthy. So what is a person who's being that? What do they do differently? They're not going to eat that extra cupcake. They're not going to sit and watch Netflix all night, drinking soda and eating popcorn. They are not going to skip out on their workouts at the gym. They're not going to take that extra drink of alcohol. They're going to drink water. They're going to eat some vegetables. They're going to make sure they work out every single day. They are going to make smart decisions in the kitchen. They're going to make wise decisions when it comes to going to the gym. They're going to make sure they're getting the right amount of rest. They're going to make sure they're putting the proper nutrients in their body. Why are they going to do all those things? Nobody has to tell them. You can find those things out. But the thing is, when you decide who you are going to be, the actions automatically follow. Because again, if a person is a smoker and they quit smoking and then they say, they don't say, hey, and somebody offers them a cigarette, they don't say, well, what kind of cigarette is it? Or maybe I'll have a little puff. They say, I'm not a smoker. They say, I don't smoke. That's a being thing. I don't smoke is a matter of being. I, they don't say, well, I smoke only on Mondays and Tuesdays. No, they just don't involve in it. I'm a person who's, I'm a fit person who's in shape. So what goes with that? Even if you're not that person, and I ask you that question, what goes with the person who's in shape? They probably go to the gym. They probably drink a lot of water. They probably make smart decisions. If I tell you a person is an author, that's who they're being. They're an author. What does that person do every day? Any logical, reasonable person is going to answer the question, well, they probably spend some time writing, right? Because that's what an author does. If I tell you a person is a personal trainer and I ask you, what does that person do? What does that person look like? Uh, how does that person talk? What's in that person's refrigerator? You don't have to know them to be able to answer the question. All right. They probably have some six pack abs. They probably are in pretty good shape. They probably have an Instagram with a bunch of pictures of their body. They probably have some clients. They probably have some some vegetables and some fruit in their refrigerator. They probably don't eat a whole lot of bad foods. Why? Because that being comes with a certain amount of doing. So when you fix your being or you choose your being of who you want to be in life, the actions will automatically come with it logically and reasonably based on the being that you have decided on. So when you decide I am this, 
you can just look it up. All right, what does this person do? You don't even have to look it up. Just ask yourself if you're a smart, logical person, which you have to be if you've listened to the two hours of this conversation. Right, what do I do? What does that person do? What does an athlete do? What does an author do? What does an entrepreneur do? And you will look for the answers and then you'll get them. And because that's who you're being, you won't have a problem doing it. So that's what I would give people when it comes to the one piece of advice I would give them. And when you get the doing in place, the having the results, they come with it automatically. You don't even have to worry about that. You don't have to chase it. And when it comes to where I'm at online, I'm on every social media platform, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. I'm on everything except TikTok. I'm on YouTube. I publish on all these platforms every day. I'm on Instagram. I use Instagram stories a lot. So if you want to see my day to day, follow me on Instagram stories. Uh, I write articles damn near every day, at least three times a week. You'll get an article from me. You can sign up for that by going to workonmygame.com. You get on my email list completely free. Articles come multiple times a week for free. Uh, the Mirror Motivation, we already talked about, mirrormotivation.com. We have work on your game, university.com, but people are not going to remember any of these things, Parham. So I'll just tell you, whichever platform, yeah, it'll be in the description, but whatever platform you like, just choose it or just Google me, put my name in, Dre Baldwin, and I'm everywhere that you look. That's fantastic. So, you know, we talked about your process, Dre. We talked about, you know, starting basketball, not the greatest, trusted the process, went forward, got cut from, you know, the basketball team when you were in your pretty much from grade nine to 11, then you made it in your right. senior year, still struggled, still persevered, you know, went to the right. different leagues and, you know, had some hardship, went pro, got cut and, you know, not cut, sorry, moved on and took a little break, you know, went back down, worked at the grocery store. And now you're, you know, just doing so much in your life. And I think your story is one to really visualize trusting the process because you know your life was literally just like an up and down you know it was it was like a frequency thing you know and that's right and you know you were ready for every opportunity that came you worked every single day and right. that one time where an opportunity came through you're ready to go and you took it and you went through right. now you're doing amazing things with the books you're writing with a podcast with all the content you're producing and a lot of people are just gaining so much value and life experience just from you. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here. It was an absolute pleasure seeing someone that I looked up to when I was playing basketball and learning from life at a young stage. And we wish you the best, sir. Thank you again. Thank you for having me, man. Really glad to see uh, your evolution from a basketball player to where you are now. And I'm happy that I played maybe just a tiny, tiny piece in that over the over the years and i really appreciate you reaching out and having me here on your show i'm looking forward to hearing the feedback from your audience absolutely all the best Dre. thank you hey everyone i'm back after another amazing episode with another amazing guest we hope we added value into your life so you could take the tips from this episode and fuel your process forward if you enjoyed our episode today and think other friends or family members may also appreciate the lessons that our podcast brings be sure to share us with them. Subscribe and rate our show so we know how we did. And always remember, trust the process.